Well, if you remain standing and you'll open into your Bibles, we're going to be looking at uh, Luke's Gospel, chapter 7. We'll be looking at verses 11 through 17. Luke 7, verses 11 through 17. And this is what Luke wrote. Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a considerable crowd from the town was with her. When the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier, and the bearer stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you for your word. God, we thank you that your word is a lamp to our feet, a light to our path. And now as we pause during this time, Lord, to ponder upon your living word, May we draw strength and power to live a victorious life. Now, Lord God, let the words of my mouth and meditation in my heart be acceptable in your sight. O O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. Well, it's great to be with you, Shorebreak Church. Whether you're here in person or if you're uh, watching this online, ekomo mai, welcome. It's great to be, uh, be uh, um, standing before you. Um, actually, I think this is going to be the last time you're going to hear me preach. I, uh, many of you know or may not know, but um, I'm going to be departing and uh, leaving the island in, um, at the beginning of July, at the end of June. And so it's been a privilege for me to be able to be part of Shorebreak and to be able to share the word with you. Today is uh, kind of bittersweet. Um, with the text here kind of, kind of fitting in some ways, I guess. Um, when, I, when Leo asked me to preach this uh, passage, I got to admit, I wasn't so sure what I was going to share. In fact, um, you know, of course, as you know, as you begin to study the text, surprise, surprise, uh, I was amazed at the depth of God's living word. And then I had to figure out just what I was going to focus on since there's so much to glean from this passage. In fact, as I was coming up, I was talking with Dan uh, that uh, I wasn't sure like, like how long I was going to be preaching for. I'd gone over this uh, sermon a couple of times, and each time I'm tweaking it right up to the last minute, and um, I think it's going to take about an hour, hour and 45 minutes. So, um, so Dan's going to get up somewhere along the way. He's going to give me the, the cut sign and begin to pray. Uh, so if that happens, y'all know we'll just be ending it there, uh, wherever that is. Uh, but no, hopefully it won't, uh, it won't be too, too bad. If, if you start getting um, a little bit like, you know, dreary-eyed or whatever, uh, there will be a tap dance at the end, so please stay for that. Uh, that'll be worth your, worth your weight alone. Um, but you know, if we didn't have God, it would be so easy to let the troubles of this world steal our hope. Everywhere you look, there's so much suffering. 
whether it be disease or oppression, uh, financial hardship. We know in the world today, there's so many things going on just, just in our world uh, around our financial uh, challenges, whether it be anxiety or depression, uh, families are breaking apart, uh, parents are heartbroken over rebellious children. Uh, there's all kinds of severe personal problems that people face. There's a desperate need for a message of true hope to overcome the despair. And there's a desperate need of real power to overcome our weakness. Sometimes we feel like the guy who you see the light at the end of the tunnel, then you realize it's a train coming towards you. Um, that's false hope. What we're looking for is true hope, right? Um, the gospel of Jesus offers us true hope. Uh, it gives us real power to this hurting world. And this is graphically portrayed for us in Luke chapter 7, verses 11 through 17. In fact, there's three recorded times where uh, miracles where Jesus raised a person from the dead back to life. There's Jairus' daughter, which is in uh, three of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Of course, there's a story of Lazarus, the brother of Mary and Martha, who was raised from the dead, and that's found in the book of John. And then we see here the, the widow's only son being raised from the dead, and that's found only in Luke's gospel. All of Jesus' miracles, though, they go beyond the literal fact that there are great spiritual lessons uh, to be learned from them. It's, it's beyond just a fact of something happening, but there's lessons that we can learn from them. John referred to them as signs, meaning that they have significance but beyond the outward. They point us to something deeper. Uh, Charles Spurgeon, he said, they are sermons to the eye, just as his spoken discourses are sermons to the ear. So today we're going to look at Jesus ministering to a woman at a funeral for her only son with his compassion. For her, it was a horrible, horrible day. It was the worst day of her life, very likely. She was emotionally wrecked. But Christ brought hope and power into that gloomy scene. And one of the things that I've learned early in ministry was the devastation that people experience when a loved one dies. In every situation where I have to deal with death, I realized just how inadequate that I am. In my own life, I watched my mother uh, take her last breath. And I know that many of you have experienced something similar in dealing with the loss of a loved one. So you can relate to the situation that we'll be, we're looking at here today. So what we're going to do is we're going to spend some time, we're going to linger in the text a little bit, walk with, uh, if, if you will, walk with me through this narrative as we go to this funeral. And as you picture this event... I want us also to see how this biblical narrative can impact us today, over 2,000 years later. Um, but for right now, we're going to go back in time. So if you look with me, we're looking at Luke chapter 7, verse 11. Here's what it says. It says, soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. That's soon afterward that you see there. That's referencing the centurion. Now, Leo mentioned to you guys last week that he kind of messed up. He, he went backwards. He was supposed to preach verses 1 through 10. He's going to do that when he gets back. But that passage is about a centurion who had a servant who was sick and was dying. And the centurion called, had some people call for Jesus to come and uh, heal the servant. And Jesus, of course, before he even got there, he healed him from afar. What we're seeing here, when that soon afterward here, is referencing that centurion who amazed Jesus with his great faith. Jesus healed the centurion's servant. Uh, this was a, an extremely popular time in the ministry of Jesus. A large crowd went along with him everywhere. 
And everywhere Jesus went, miracles happened. Where he went, lives changed. Jesus went to a tiny village named Nain. Now, Nain means beautiful or beauty, also means lovely. Kind of an interesting contrast as we look at this story here. And this is, by the way, the only time in Scripture that the tiny town of Nain is mentioned in the entire Bible. The city of Nain, we're going to have a map that's pop up here on the screen here in a second. Um, there's the city of Nain, it, it lies at the eastern slope on the edge of the beautiful valley of Jezreel. Um, and pop that map up for me. Okay, so you guys can see it real easily, right? Um, hopefully you can see, you'll see the Sea of Galilee, that's the big blue lake uh, right up to the top right. And you'll notice that just to the top left of that is Capernaum. That's where Jesus is uh, coming from. He was there where the centurion's servant was, was ill, and he, and, he, uh, and he healed that servant. And so um, it's three miles north, if you will, of the, of the city is Mount Tabor. Um, just above Nain, you'll, uh, you can see just where that red circle is on Nain, up to the right, that's Mount Tabor, maybe about just a hair up, up there. Mount Tabor, just for your reference, is about 2,000, I think it's just under 2,000 feet uh, above sea level. Uh, so it's a very rugged terrain that we're looking at here. Um, it's also about 25 miles southwest of Capernaum. So as I showed you on the map there, you see uh, Capernaum up there at the top left of Sea of Galilee. You see the red spot there, that's Nain. Jesus is traveling from Capernaum down to Nain across all this rugged, ter rugged territory. About 25 miles is the distance there. Um, now, just to put that in perspective, imagine that you guys, how many of you guys are familiar with uh, Ali'i Drive down here, uh, Coconut Grove, uh, that makes that sound familiar. There's a, a volleyball court right there, right? So you might be sitting down there by, you might have had some coffee, you might have gotten yourself a shave ice, or you might be, maybe you stopped over at Foster's Kitchen or Humpy's, or one of the things, you're sitting right there, and you, and you decide, you know, I think I'm going to take a 25-mile walk, I'm going to walk now, and you walk from there to Queens Marketplace and Waikoloa Beach. That's the distance that we're talking about that Jesus traveled. But now here's, you're not just going to take sidewalks and pavement. You got to walk the King's Trail. The King's Trail. You know, if you've anybody's ever walked any part of the King's Trail, it's a rugged uh, path that's, that's, that is around here. Um, I was talking with Christopher and Lynn. They went to Kauai, was it a month ago or so? About a month or so. And they did a crazy thing with some friends. They decided they were going to hike the Nepali coast, the, uh, the Kalalau Trail. Uh, has anybody ever been over to Kauai and hiked out the Nepali coast, uh, the Kalalau? Have you gone all the way out to the end? Uh, it's about 11 miles out. It's about a 22-mile round trip. Um, if you look at the things, they'll say it's about 800 feet, but it's up and down, up and down. Um, rugged, difficult hike. That's not even 25 miles. It's only 22 miles. I think they said they did it. They ended up doing it all in one day, which was totally nuts. I, I thought I raised him better, but... Um, I think y'all did it in just around 12 hours or so, something like that. Uh, Christopher came back, his toenail fell off, he was limping, he was, uh, you know, he was, he was telling me, I mean, he's not, he's a young guy, but he was all bent over, his back was hurting, you know, they were just telling me how, and they were in such pain for like days afterward, right? This is what Jesus did in one day, just walking with a bunch of people from Capernaum down to Nain. Gives you a, a picture of what we're talking about. So it's not just a simple little walk. It's not like he's walking, uh, you know, two blocks down the road here. He's walking 25 miles, and a large crowd of people is following him, and it's taking him a full day, probably 
uh, taking him a full day to, to make this, uh, this trek. So the question then is, why did Jesus go there? Why would the most popular ministry ever, the, the, uh, the person that people were coming from all over the place to see and hear, why would he decide to take an entire day, walk 25 miles across rough terrain to this tiny village that was really unimportant, no one even uh, knew about. It's, like I said, it's only showed one time here. Dragging this large crowd of people. The answer, it's clear. There was a divine appointment of, com- of compassion. There was no other reason to go to Nain. We see how Jesus goes looking for wrecked people. The woman didn't ask Jesus to come. You'll, in the uh, passage before where the uh, centurion, they had, they had called and asked Jesus to come. In this particular situation, Jesus goes. She didn't ask him to come, but he went. He's there on the worst day of her entire life. We need to see Jesus there on the worst day of our lives as well. No matter how painful, lonely, isolated we feel, Jesus knows exactly where we are, and he'll go out of his way to get to you. Some of you here may be broken today. We're going to all experience brokenness at some point in our lives. Jesus knows that, and before it even happens, Jesus is on the way. The funeral that was going on there that same day, it happens uh, it happened within hours. So back in the day, um, the, the, the folks, when they would die, they were buried on the same day. It wasn't like, you didn't have this long time where like, hey, someone dies and we're going to have the, the wake in a few days and we're going to have the funeral in a week. Um, they, the, someone dies, before the sun goes down, that person's being taken out to be buried. So here's the thing. If it's 25 miles to Nain, Jesus had to begin his walk before that sun of this widow had even died in order to be there at that exact moment. No matter what you're about to go through in your life, Jesus is already on the way. Though name may not seem particularly important, the widow was, and so are you. So let's look at verse 12. It says, as he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out. The only son of the mother, of his mother, and she was a widow, And a considerable crowd from the town was with her. Now, she's previously buried her husband. We know widowhood, just even, it's difficult enough in America today. The hurt, the loneliness. But imagine in that day and in that place. There's no social security back then. There's no family services. She's burying her only son who supported her since since his father died. She's suddenly all alone. There's no other children, there's no welfare, and bleak future, tragic. When God wants to show the saddest of all things in Scripture, he used the death of the only son. This is the saddest of sad times. The only life support this woman had had was dead. Once for her, life was great. She had a husband, she had a son, suddenly husband's dead. Suddenly, she's burying her only son. Her life is wrecked. She's alone. How quickly life can wreck. But Jesus is on the way. The way funerals were done, like I told you, in the culture back then were somewhat different. 
the widowed woman, she would walk ahead mourning, being comforted. They actually had uh, paid professional mourners. Uh, imagine back in the day, you could, you could make money just walking along a funeral, and if you can wail loud enough, you could get paid to mourn for someone. But that's, that's what they did. So she would walk ahead, comforted by our family, friends, and uh, the, the officiating minister. And uh, the dead person was wrapped in, uh, basically, in, in a burial shroud, and he was carried, if you notice in the verse, it said he was on a bier. So he's carried on a bier, B-I-E-R. It's like a coffin, basically. What it really is, it's like a wicker-type stretcher that's on. So it's open, an open um, type of casket. He's carried by pallbearers behind her. Uh, the funeral, by the way, was a community event. Um, and any good Jew would you know, join in the procession. A large crowd from the town was there. Jesus and his crowd showed up running headlong into the widow's crowd. Two crowds met. They meet at the gate. What a contrast between the crowd that was following Jesus and the crowd that was following the widow and her dead son. Jesus and his disciples, they were rejoicing and, and blessing the Lord. But the widow and her friends, they were lamenting the death of her only son. Jesus was headed for the city while the mourners were heading for the cemetery. Spiritually speaking, each of us is in one of these two crowds. If you've trusted Christ, you're going to the city. Hebrews chapter 11 tells us that, verses 10 and following. It says here, it says, For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. A few verses later in verse 16, it says, And they desire a better country, that is a heavenly one, Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city, the city of the living God. If you're dead in sin, you're already in the cemetery and under the, under the condemnation of God. So we need to trust Jesus Christ and be raised from the dead. On your way to the cemetery or on your way to the city? Coming out of the gate was a son of man that died. Coming through the gate was the son of God who gives life. Coming out of the gate was death. Coming into the gate was the prince of life. Two enemies met that day. And when life through Jesus Christ comes, the enemy of death is always defeated. Thank God when Jesus comes, deliverance takes place. He sets the captives free. If you're in bondage or enslaved or you're dead in your sins, you can meet the master at the gate. The day that Jesus comes, things are not the same anymore. So we look on past this and look at verse 13, and it says here, when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her. This word compassion is a really cool word. He sees her. When the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her. So let me ask you, how can you tell when you look at someone? How can, how can you tell if they're feeling compassion? Because as you probably know, Luke wrote this book based on eyewitness testimony. You see, someone told Luke this story. Luke wasn't there, he, but, he, but he talked to eyewitnesses. And somebody reported something like this. I saw Jesus and he was filled with compassion. Think about this. What do you see? As you're sitting there, what do you see in a person that tells you they're filled with compassion? Now, what part, which part of their body do you notice? 
It's their eyes. You notice, you'll notice something in their eyes that tells you Jesus saw her and he had compassion on her. He had compassion. Compassion literally means to suffer with. Uh, the connection of suffering with another person brings compassion beyond sympathy into the realm of empathy. The Greek word for, for, uh, for compassion, I like it. It's, it's splagnitsomai. Splagnitsomai. That's cool word. You, you know, remember that, splagnitsomai. Try to spell it. It's a crazy spelling. Splagnitsomai. The first part of the word means internal organs. Um, so splagnitsomai literally means to be moved so deeply by something that you feel it in the pit of your stomach. It's a strong word about a strong response. There's nothing subtle or uncertain about uh, this, this thing called compassion. Splagnitsomai means it's a visceral, it's a gut-wrenching emotional response that is so strong that we're physically moved to action. Jesus is moved by compassion. Let's say that another way. Compassion moves Jesus. There's power in compassion like nothing else. The God of the universe hurts when I hurt. Compassion moves the hand of God. Not only did Jesus feel compassion but, uh, uh, and, and the situation, but he tells us that we should also feel compassion, and compassion should move us. Uh, two examples of that are found in uh, the story of the Good Samaritan in Luke chapter 10. Remember when the Good Samaritan sees the person who's fallen on the side of the road and is, is, uh, is there all beat up? The Samaritan looks upon him, and he has compassion, and he goes to him. And again, we look at it a little bit later, another uh, passage uh, in Luke chapter 15 about the prodigal son. And so when the father, he's looking afar off, and he's looking for his son, and when he sees his son from a distance, he has compassion, and he runs to him. So you see, when we have compassion, we cannot stop from moving it from moving us. We move with compassion. Jesus never had compassion alone. His compassion brought about a power from God. Maybe we can't raise the dead, but if we have compassion, a power from God will come. We'll do something amazing and even miraculous. We can pray powerfully. We can visit someone in the hospital or make a phone call. That's powerful. We can write a powerful note, make an amazing supper. Power comes from your compassion. So we look at verses 13 and 14, and it says here, the Lord, when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her, and he said to her, do not weep. Then he came up, and he touched the bier, and the, and the bearers stood still, and he said, young man, I say to you, arise. Well, how does that statement, do not weep, stand against the fact that he obviously had compassion for her? Kind of seems kind of a uh, you know, an odd way of saying that, right? But he spoke to the widow and he said, do not weep. He said the same thing, by the way, when he went to Jairus' house after Jairus' daughter had died <clears throat> in Luke chapter 8. And everybody was weeping and mourning. And he said, do not weep for she's not dead, but sleeping. You're talking about Jairus' daughter. I've been to a lot of funerals. Honestly, I've never said, don't, don't weep. Um, I wouldn't recommend that to anyone. Um, in fact, I usually say and often do the opposite. I, I wouldn't suggest that you do that. But it's interesting that Jesus did. He does it on another occasion, by the way, in Lazarus and the story of Lazarus, 
I told you the first two, Jairus and this one, he said, do not weep. In the story of Lazarus, Jesus looked upon them with compassion and Jesus wept, the shortest verse in scripture. So there were times in this particular case, he said, do not weep. So he meets us at our point of need. This is what he does for people today. It's not that we may not weep when our family and friends die. Even Christ wept at Lazarus's grave. But when their loved ones die uh, in the Lord, believers are taught a little bit differently. First Thess- Thessalonians 4.13, it's a verse that I've used many times at funerals. It says this, it says, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who have no hope. This is what the Lord wanted the woman to know. Even before he performed the miracle before her eyes, he anticipated for her the resurrection joy that comes when we see his resurrection power at work. The day is coming, by the way, when God's, it tells us this in Revelations 21, it says, God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And then we see the dead man, verse 15. The dead man sat up and he began to talk. And Jesus gave him back to his mother. Jesus gave him back to his mother. That's, that's an interesting statement, right? Why wouldn't, why wouldn't Jesus give him back to his mother? Right? Luke's making a point, obviously. That's why Jesus went to Nain. Compassion moved, moved Jesus to walk 25 miles to Nain to find a brokenhearted mother so he could give her son back to her. His focus was on the widow. We might have thought that this was a great opportunity to preach. You look at the situation like, come on, this, hey, this is perfect. You know, Jesus is like, hey, folks, you can see that you know, what I've done here is a, uh, is a preview of what's to come, the kingdom of God. If you believe in me, you too will be resurrected to new life. I came to make all things new. Or maybe we would think, let's talk about the young man. You know, he's been dead for about 12 hours, probably about 12 hours in heaven, maybe. And so uh, what was he doing? Hey, what was that like? Um, hey, maybe we can get him a book deal or maybe a movie or something. I don't know what, uh, you know, Jesus wasn't interested in that, right? He didn't say it's so good to have you back. His focus is all on her, on the widow. And in verse, thir- uh, verse uh, 16 and 17, fear seized them all, And they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding uh, country. Now, you see that word fear. Fear seized them all. Um, Another translation says they were filled with awe, and they praised God. So this fear that we're talking about was this awe. Of, of God. Uh, the response of the, of the people was to glorify God and identify Jesus with the prophet the Jews had been waiting for throughout Old Testament and New. Um, it didn't take long for the report of this miracle to spread. People were even more enthusiastic to see Jesus, and the great crowds followed him. Um, see, they, there's a, an Elijah Elisha connection here. Um, there's not that many places in the Bible where someone's raised from the dead. Um, two, uh, actually, there's three Old Testaments with Elijah and Elisha. Elijah um, in, at Zarephath in 1 Kings, um, he goes there and he basically prays for a widow's son, just like this, a widow's son in Zarephath. And um, it, it was kind of a 
you know, theatrical thing. He went in and he, he laid upon the, the child uh, three times. He prayed before, prayed to God, um, and God gave life back to the widow's son. Um, Elisha did the same thing. Um, he had uh, told a woman she was going to have a child. She had a child a year, uh, sometime later, uh, the child got sick, died, and she calls for Elisha. Elisha comes back. He goes into the room and he prays um, over, and this is the Shunammite woman, prays over the, over the, uh, the child and lays himself upon the child and the child warms up, the child uh, is risen. So we see two prophets from the Old Testament. And so that's what we see here. They see this, and they call him a prophet. Not the prophet. They call him a prophet. They're moving in the right direction, but not quite there. The reputation, though, now is spreading more than... It's like, instead of, hey, come here, there's a, a great teacher. It's now spreading that God has visited his people. But, uh, but it's important not to, not to mention and not to miss this point. The event resulted in a response. When this happened, the people heard it and the, and the, and the message spread, right? It spread throughout all of the country. Um, so they focused on Jesus and they witnessed his act of compassion that leads to hope. And so as we're looking at this, what are some takeaways from this biblical event? We see several things through this that God's showing us. Jesus didn't just go there one day and raise a widow's son, but there were so many components to this situation that are, are important to notice. First of all, the life-giving word of Christ is a message of hope in a world of despair. You know, like I said, you notice how Luke painted the, painted the scene. Two large crowds converge. The one crowd was grieving, it was hopeless, and the, the second crowd comes in from the opposite direction following Jesus, the Messiah who was performing these great miracles. This crowd had hope. Um, sharp contrast between these two crowds. See, wherever the Lord Jesus is absent, there's despair in the face of, the earth, of, in the face of death. Wherever he's present, there's hope. The hope that Christ gives shines in, three, in several ways. The, I'm going to just talk about a few of them here. So one of those ways is there's hope that comes through his compassion. The Lord felt compassion for her. Wherever the Lord Jesus confronts human sorrow and need, he feels compassion. He did then when he was upon the earth, and he does now as the sympathetic high priest. Th that kind of compassion brings hope. In our despair, we're prone to feel like nobody understands. Our loneliness intensifies and the despair grows. But to know that someone else feels with us brings a ray of hope. We're not alone. Jesus understands and he cares. Jesus' words, do not weep, would have been insensitive if he had not been able to do something about her situation. Christ never calls uh, upon people to stop their tears when those tears are wholesome. But in this instance, he's lovingly calling upon this woman for a spark of trust in himself. He's tenderly saying, hey, look, look to me. I can do something about the cause of your grief. If we want to be effective witnesses for Christ, then we must ask him to deepen our compassion for the lost. 
It's truly been said that people don't care how much you know till they know how much you care. When we show people the compassion of Christ, it often opens their hearts to hear the truth of the gospel. The hope that Christ gives shines in a second way. There's hope that comes through his grace. And that grace is that unmerited favor. God's unmerited favor gives us hope. The woman did nothing to merit this miracle. Unlike the centurion in the miracle that was just before this, uh, no one said to Jesus, hey, this woman's worthy for you to grant uh, this to her. She didn't even ask the Lord to do it. There's no trace of faith or expectation on her part. And there was nothing in the dead young man to merit his, this miracle for him. And Jesus didn't say, hey, what a good-looking corpse. I've never seen such a fine corpse. You know what I think I'm going to do? I'm going to raise him uh, from the dead. I don't care how nicely you dress up a corpse. Uh, the corpses don't have much merit. This miracle came totally from Christ's great compassion and love. It was all grace. The gospel is all of grace, and it's, it's not of all of works. Uh, you know, that sense, it's, it's not try, try a little harder. Clean up your life. Uh, do these good works so that you can receive God's salvation. That's the message that we see a lot in religion today, and it only increases despair because the already despairing sinner thinks, what if I can't measure up? The truth is we never will. But the message of grace brings hope. It says, even when we're dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together in Christ. We find that in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 5. God doesn't save every, anyone because they have worked hard to get their corpses in pretty good condition. When we were dead, he made us alive so that he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Again, Ephesians 2, 7. Thus it brings hope to the hopeless. Now, our text reveals the hope that comes through Christ's compassion and through his grace. And also, there's the hope that comes through his word. Christ performed his miracles in a variety of ways. It's significant, though, for us to realize that each time he raised the dead, he did it the same way, by speaking to the dead person and calling him or her back to life. Now, the example I told you of Elijah and Elisha, they prayed to God, and God brought the person. He used them, but it was their prayer to God. Jesus spoke to the dead person, arise. Very different. Um, it was his bare word that quickened the dead. There's great power in God's word. He spoke the universe into existence through his word. The centurion said to Jesus, hey, just say the word and my servant will be healed. We have in scriptures that same powerful word, living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. And in Isaiah 55, this is what the prophet wrote. He it promises us this. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and do not return there without watering the earth, and making it bare and sprout, and furnishing seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be which goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. You see, the power of God's word gives us great hope because it's able to bring change to our hopeless situations. Just as Christ spoke personally to this dead young man, 
He speaks personally to the hearts of dead sinners today. Just as this young man who could not rise because he was dead, he instantly did in response to Christ's word. So therefore, you you and I can as well. The Lord speaks the gospel through his servants and through his written word. As witnesses, we need to direct people into the word of God. If you want to see your children uh, solidly converted, read the word of God to them. And when they're able, encourage them to read on their own. As you talk to people about uh, their need for Christ, quote scripture to them. Challenge them to read it themselves. So in, in the gospel of Christ, we have a word for hope, a word of hope for a despairing world. The report from Nain spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. It was a ripple effect. It spreads ever wider and it still does now over 2,000 years later. Who can ever tell the powerful effects of the conversion of just one soul? The results may not be known for years and years, but they can be mighty. In the fall of 1934, there's a southern evangelist named Mordecai Ham. He preached for 11 weeks in Charlotte, North Carolina. And there was a 16-year-old boy there who was outwardly religious but inwardly spiritually dead. The boy came under the conviction of the Holy Spirit, and he received new life in Christ. Who can tell the impact that that boy, Billy Graham, has had on the cross of Christ? And I want to finish up by sharing with you, a, a, this is an old um, song. Um, it's not that old. It's, it's older than most of us here, except for probably Craig and somebody else. Um, um, the song is, He Came to Me. <laughs> he Came to Me. The, the gulf that separated me from Christ, my Lord, it was so vast, the crossing I could never ford. From where I was to his domain, it seemed so far. I cried, dear Lord, I cannot come to where you are. He came to me. Oh, he came to me. When I could not come to where he was, he came to me. That's why he died on Calvary. When I could not come to where he was, he came to me. He came to me when I was bound in chains of sin. He came to me when I possessed no hope within. He picked me up and he drew me gently to his side, where today in his sweet love I now abide. He came to me. Oh, he came to me. When I could not come to where he was, he came to me. That's why he died on Calvary. When I could not come to where he was, he came to me. Has he ever come to you in your time of need? Have you ever got to the place where it seemed totally hopeless? And out of nowhere, you look and there's Jesus. You may not deal with a lot of hopeless situations in your life. I actually, I deal with quite a few every week. I deal with people just about every week who are facing seemingly hopeless situations. The lives are surrounded with no hope. And that's why, in fact, I call my counseling ministry a hope network. Um, I sometimes watch people pray and, and things don't go the way they think. But I'll say that just the right time, Christ makes a journey that's further than 25 miles. He makes a journey that's all the way from heaven to where we are. And suddenly at the gate, when all seems hopeless, life meets death, help meets hope. The Lord of Lords sees us. He has compassion on us 
and he delivers us. Where are you right now, today? Does it seem hopeless? Are you downtrodden? It's time to say, Lord, I need you. Lord, I need you to come to me. I need you to help me. I'm at the end of my rope. I can't go any further. Jesus is right here, right now. Don't leave without coming to him. In fact, he's come here right now to meet you. Let's pray. Dear God, God of compassion, pray, Lord, that you you would visit us right now. Lord, that we know that where you are, Lord, things happen. Have mercy on us, Lord. Whether it be like the story here, someone who's died, a widow's son, orphans, the least among us. Lord Jesus, you've broken our bondage and sin. You've broken our bondage to death, basically freeing us, Lord. Holy Spirit, we pray that you move with mighty power and you've visited us here today. We give you praise in Jesus' name, amen.